Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Mercier. I'm co-owner of Juice Imports, and today I'm going to walk you through the October edition of our Natural Wine Club. So this month we have three wines, one white and two reds, and we're going to start off the white, which is made by uh, Kamara Estate in, well, I guess near uh, Thessaloniki, Greece. So Greece has been producing wine for somewhere between five and 6,000 years ago, uh, which is an enormously long time. It's not the longest time that we have documented evidence of winemaking, but it's definitely a huge amount of time. Uh, at that point, you could even argue that Greece, uh, there weren't even really a Greek people at that point. Uh, the language hadn't even really you know, started to take off uh, until shortly after that. But uh, either way, well, for the you know, purposes of this podcast, we'll, we'll call them Greeks. Uh, so if you look back that far, uh, a lot of people expect to see, you know, sort of what we're currently calling natural wines. So wines made without any additives, um, you know, they're not using yeast engineered in a lab, they're not using enzymes, they're not using, uh, you know, sort of all those things, everything is unfined and unfiltered. But this isn't necessarily the case. Uh, in the ancient times, basically, they didn't understand how fermentation was happening. They didn't understand the science of wine. At that point, we didn't really know that there were bacteria and microbes that were converting this from being, um, you know, grape juice into this, you know, sort of beautiful beverage that could be preserved for years and years on end and provide sustenance as well as, uh, you know, entertainment, I suppose. Um and so the wines basically tasted really bad for the most part. There's a handful of good examples, uh, at least that's what we understand from the literature, but most of them tasted good because of the things that they added to them. So whether this be uh, aromatic herbs and making sort of a version of vermouth that would have been you know, low alcohol, probably a combination of sweet and bitter. Um, often wines were uh, flavored with honey and you know, there's cases of pine resin. Um, you know, gypsum was used a lot as uh, both an, acid, uh, an acidifying agent uh, as well as it helped clarify the wine. So you ended up with something that was maybe a little bit more stable. Um, regardless, these wines were not of what we think of as natural wines necessarily. These are uh, heavily adulterated, um, oftentimes in order to preserve the wine. So even in the case of adding seawater to the wine, the salt basically helped preserve the wine. Uh, this was a really common practice, uh, I guess, you know, salt and wine, that, that doesn't sound that bad, uh, you know, like a, it's like a Caesar, it's like that more savory style beverage, which is, you know, kind of sounds a little bit appealing if, uh, if you get the seawater content just right, I suppose. Um, but this is how wine was, was made for basically thousands of years. Uh, there's documented evidence of uh, the Greeks having exported wine as far away as uh, you know, places like Egypt, for instance, um, you know, dating back actual thousands of years, which is super impressive. Uh, the Greeks were incredibly industrious. They um, are basically responsible for bringing at least viticulture as we know it in a modern sense uh, to places like Sicily and the rest of southern Italy, uh, as well as southern France, which later, once the Romans sort of took over where they left off, uh, ended up being hugely important both for their economy as well as for the basically health and prosperity of the, the people that live there. Um, so the Greeks were really important for all those reasons, and classically speaking, Greek wine was really sought after. 
especially certain sweet styles of wine. Again, if you think back in ancient times, it's not like now where we just have infinite supply of sugar. Back then, sugar was definitely a rarity. And not only that, but it sort of triggers this spot in our brain that tells us that we're getting calories, uh, calories that are going to maybe help us through a long winter uh, or, you know, at least sort of bolster us for, you know, hard times ahead. So our desire to drink things that were sweet was way higher back then than it is now. Um, and so some of the sweet wines coming from from this area were, again, super popular, uh, probably drank by royalty more often than not. The other interesting thing about the Greeks, uh, especially in historic times, is that um, they were one of the few cultures that actually adopted wine as uh, a sort of full-time beverage. Most other I don't know, I guess civilizations at that period of time, whether it be the the Babylonians or the Egyptians, um, they drank beer most of the time. And then for special occasions, they would drink wine or for religious ceremonies or um, something along those lines. That's when they would drink the wine because they they just felt like it was so divine Uh, versus the Greeks. They still very much celebrated wine as if it were you know, divinely created, you know, Dionysus and the, the cults uh, of Dionysus and whatnot, but uh, they drank it every single day. They also believed in watering down their wine so that you could drink more of it over longer periods of time. Uh, they thought that anybody who didn't water down their wine were, were barbarous. Uh, you know, the, the crazy clans from the north who didn't water down their wine were just a bunch of drunkards. Uh, again, classical Greeks were all about uh, balance, all about modesty. So, you know, you wanted to be a little bit drunk, but not super drunk. And if you're drinking this stuff all day, watering it down seemed to be a a good option. Not only that, but the acidity and alcohol in wine uh, actually helps um, basically kill the bacteria in a lot of the water that they were drinking at that period of time. So it was actually safer to drink uh, wine than water, at least in some areas. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting fact. Uh, unfortunately, Greeks then went through uh, some pretty hard times. Um, world War One and World War Two both sort of decimated the economy. Um, the fact that they were basically ruled by somebody else preceding that uh, was also really challenging for them. Uh, and then in more modern times, uh, the civil war that erupted in Greece after World War II, uh, basically funded by a combination of, um, you know, the U.S. and the U.K., uh, trying to be, you know, all pro-democracy, and then Eastern Europe sort of funding, uh, I guess, less democratic governments, uh, basically resulted in in a civil war being funded by these exterior powers, and that sort of really set Greece up to not prosper uh, after World War II the way that some other countries came out of the, the war. Um, luckily, since I guess maybe the 1960s, but probably a little bit later than that, um, the wines have taken a really positive turn. Uh, Greeks have sort of um, reinvested in one of the things that they sort of introduced to the world and whether that be in actual viticulture or in winemaking uh, now you can find winemaking schools all across Greece which is hugely important um, you have Greek masters of wine which is fantastic it helps spread the word of 
Greek wine around the world. Um, but basically getting back to making high quality wine as opposed to just making bulk wine for exportation. Um, even up until, again, the, the 1960s, most of the wine there was sold in barrel, not in bottle. So you can imagine sort of the, the qualitative differences between uh, what we'd consider modern wine and the way that they were selling it. So Greece has had to really overcome some, some epic challenges in order to end up where they are now. Um, Kamara Estate is located uh, near Thessaloniki, um, which has really interesting connection to the actual wine that we have uh, in this month's wine club. So this wine is made from two different Greek grape varieties. Um, it's made from Malagusia and uh, Sirtiko, uh, both really classic Greek grape varieties and, and ones that are considered of you know, supremely high quality. Malagusia has an interesting story because it basically almost went extinct. Uh, it's a little bit harder to grow than some of the other grape varieties. It's a little more susceptible to things like uh, botrytis and different types of mildew. And so basically people were uh, opting to plant, you know, easier to grow grape varieties, but also a lot of international grape varieties. So they realized that Sauvignon Blanc on the international stage was extremely popular. So was Chardonnay. And so they're like, instead of trying to market our grape varieties that are hard to pronounce for non-Greek speakers uh, that are maybe a little less familiar, even though they're of high quality, we might as well rip out those grapes and, and plant something more recognizable. So this grape variety almost went extinct. Even now, there's only about 300 hectares planted in, in all of Greece. Um, that's a very small amount of vines. If you look at other things, you're talking about uh, hundreds of thousands of hectares planted uh, of their more classic grape varieties. So it's it's definitely, you know, it's, there's not a lot of it to go around. Uh, but basically, through a combination of uh, a particular wine estate, as well as uh, the University of Thessaloniki, they sort of isolated which of the grape, uh, which of the, the vine varieties within uh, Malagusia were really high quality. They started propagating them. They started advocating for people planting this grape variety in order to save uh, part of this Greek heritage. And now uh, plantings are actually increasing as opposed to decreasing, which is pretty fantastic. I love stories like this. You see it sort of all around the world, um, whether that be in, you know, it happens a lot in Italy because there's so many different grape varieties in Italy. Uh, there's arguably somewhere around 5,000 different grape varieties in Italy, and so a lot of them have been forgotten uh, or are vanishing. Same thing with uh, places like the island of Corsica. Um, they have dozens of uh, local grape varieties that are almost going extinct, but there's a handful of people that are trying to save them. And so I, I love when people do that. I think that by investing in these interesting grape varieties, the sort of richness of the landscape of wine, uh, you know, it's, it's way more diverse. It's way more interesting. Um, there's so many different colors that we get to paint with, basically. Um, so I'm really excited about that. The other grape variety that we have, uh, Asirtiko, um, is the classic white grape variety of, of Greece, um, at least arguably. I, I think that most people would agree that it's it's shown the most potential for really high quality of the white, white grape varieties in Greece. Um, both these grape varieties are fantastic for the climate in Greece, which is usually quite hot during the summer uh, and quite dry. So drought resistance is of 
extreme importance when it comes to selecting grape varieties, and both these grape varieties are, are quite good at adapting to that. Normally what happens with grape varieties when it's that hot uh, is that the grapes actually lose their acidity. Um, so basically through uh, evaporation, they're actually letting go of uh, some of their, their acidity. Uh, and this basically results in wines that feel flabby and soft and, and not very, you know, palate cleansing. Uh, so the fact that these grape varieties can actually survive those really hot temperatures uh, is absolutely fantastic for, for what they're planning on doing. Uh, Kamara Estate uh, is run by our good friend Demetrius. Um, he reached out to us before we went to Raw in Montreal, which is a, a natural wine festival that happens all around the world. But uh, last year it happened in, in Montreal. And so he reached out to us and asked if we'd like to meet him and taste his wines. And I went over to his booth and actually tasted with his son, who was there with him. This is like the epitome of a family-run estate. Uh, his daughter is the viticulturalist, for instance. Uh, their children and, and extended family all come and help pick the grapes, which is just, again, so endearing. Um, but yeah, I, I met his son. We ended up chatting with one another, and I was completely blown away by the wines. I thought it was the best thing that I tasted at all of Raw, and there were some pretty legendary producers there, and I thought that his wines were, were above and beyond basically everything that was available. And uh, so I sent him a, a message being like, hey, like I really like the wines, and he basically immediately responded being like, what? You didn't introduce yourself? You just tasted with my son? You have to come back immediately, and you have to taste with me, and I would love to show you my wines, and you know, like I give you no option. You have to come back. And uh, so I, I went back and we ended up, you know, chatting with each other for, I don't even know how long, half an hour, 45 minutes, something like that. Uh, and uh, it was great retasting the wines with him and, and sort of getting, you know, a little more in-depth view into to his farming practices, which are very much uh, holistic. It's, it's very much a permaculture. Uh, he just loves taking care of the land. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you, if you check out their Instagram, the vineyards are absolutely beautiful. I can't wait until... We can travel again and I can go uh, visit and hang out with them. Um, this particular wine is, is made in uh, a pretty classic way. Uh, nothing too weird happening here. Uh, they just press the grapes, uh, collect the juice, let it settle so that they're getting rid of most of the sediment, wild ferment it, um, and then once it's done fermenting, fermenting, let it sit on the leaves, so the dead yeast cells, which helps protect it from things like oxygen. Uh, and then basically bottle it with outfining, with no filtration, uh, minimal sulfur, uh, just just very classic. This is just um, just a beautiful white wine that I think really expresses everything that you you want from Greece. It's got this really interesting combination of tropical characteristics uh, as well as very sort of delicate, more mineral, more citrusy characteristics. And that's sort of the balance that Malagusia and Assyrtiko have. Malagusia tends to be more um, flamboyant, it tends to be more aromatic, uh, versus a Sirtico seems to be more linear, more focused, um, more direct. So this is a really cool combination that ends up being just perfectly balanced. This was the standout wine for me, uh, from everything that we tasted, even though I love everything they make, this was like the real, uh, you know, jaw dropper for me. And uh, I think price to quality ratio is absolutely amazing. For under 40 bucks to get a wine that's this complex, this perfect, is uh, a serious deal. We basically just got enough of it for the wine club. I think we only had maybe 
I don't know, 24 bottles left uh, other than what made it into Wine Club. So if you need an extra bottle, uh, definitely act quickly because we probably won't get it again until uh, like spring next year. So you'll have to uh, have to hang out. Maybe even later than that, actually. might might be summer next year. So uh, the second wine that we have, we're getting into our red wines now, is uh, made by Franz Venninger. For those of you who've been in the club since the beginning, which is a long time ago now, I guess, um, you'll have had a couple different wines from Franz. They always offer incredible value. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how he's able to uh, farm biodynamically the way that he does. Like if you ever visit his vineyards, they're, they're immaculate. Like they're so beautiful. They're so well tended. Yet at the same time, they're so alive. Uh, so vibrant, yet he's able to to produce these wines for uh, such an amazing price. And I think that it's it definitely has a lot to do with the fact that uh, some of these vineyards have been in his family for, you know, over 100 years. I think that he was first uh, established in like the late 1800s, some, somewhere around there. Uh, but there's, I, I vaguely remember him talking about there being sort of evidence that it might have gone back even further than that. But as far as they could tell, like the as solid evidence as they have is somewhere in the, the 1800s for his family being on, on this land. Um, so he, he's able to make these wines for just extraordinary prices, given the actual quality. Um, he's right on the border of Austria and Hungary. Um, this area is, is really interesting uh, politically. If you look back historically, this area was once um, sort of run by by the Romans, there was a Roman settlement where the town of Chopron is, which is where this wine comes from. Um, and then you sort of had occupation, not occupation, I guess, uh, occupation was happening a little bit further, um, further east and, and further west, and they somehow remained independent. Uh, but this was during uh, the Ottoman Empire. Um, they were basically allowed to continue being Hungarian, uh, despite the fact that they were surrounded by like the Ottoman Turks. So it's, um, it's a really interesting area politically for that reason. Then you have, you know, sort of annexation of, of certain parts of their country, um, both during uh, the sort of like Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, as well as World War I and World War II, basically where they're located uh, is of strategic importance. So they went from being Hungarian to being dominantly German-speaking to being sort of a mix of, of both. And that's where they're at right now. And they're starting more and more to celebrate their heritage after sort of the, the fall of communism in their, in their country, um, on the Hungarian side of the border at least. Uh, up until fairly recently, there were basically just like armed guards all along the border, and which was crazy because they had land on like both sides of the border. So it's like traveling back and forth. Uh, you know, you're, you're talking about a five minute drive from vineyard to vineyard, and, and this all used to be one region, and there was basically a, an armed uh, border that they couldn't get across because of basically the trauma after. Uh, after World War II and, and during the Cold War. So we kind of have, you know, first with Greece and, and now with Hungary, um, these countries that have really had to, I guess, struggle to to uh, get to a point of, you know, having democracy, having, uh, you know, the liberties, and then basically being able to trade and, and get back to, I guess, more 
individualized agriculture uh, in Hungary as, as well as the surrounding areas like the Czech Republic and Slovakia, they basically had like collectivized agriculture um, under communist rule. So basically all the grapes were sent to a centralized processing facility. There weren't really individual winemakers. It was just wine made by the state and you just sold your grapes to them and they, they made your wine for you. Uh, and so it's uh, we're talking about regions that are trying to emerge from that really challenging past. Uh, and that's definitely the case with, with Hungary. Um, this little part of Hungary actually basically like juts out into Austria. If you look at it on a map, uh, it seems like the border doesn't really make sense, but this area has always been sort of a combination of, of uh, Germanic and Hungarian simultaneously. Um, the actual town of Chopron is, is really cool. Uh, we visited it a couple times now, and uh, it really is a winemaking town. When we were there with our friend uh, Peter Vetzer, he brought us down to a couple cellars. Uh, he was looking at renting a cellar in actually within the city limits. And he's like, under the streets here, it's literally all old wine cellars. And they're super deep underground in some cases. Uh, and they kind of have these like weird little windows at street level. And that's basically where you would like shovel grapes. Um, and then they would fall down like basically into the basement into some sort of vat, whether that be wood or in some cases like stone troughs where they would then be crushed by foot. Uh, but basically underneath this entire city is is like little mini wineries. Uh, you see a lot less of them now, uh, especially actually operating ones within the city, uh, but they still definitely do exist. Uh, and some of them are functional, which is which is really cool. Within the city limits, you actually have vineyards as well. Uh, they're actually like walled vineyards in some of the suburbs, which is really cool to see as well. We kind of drove through one of the rich parts of town just to see what it looked like. And there was these crazy old buildings. Um, technically, the city, uh, like most of it burnt down. Uh, so there's very few medieval buildings left over. Um, most of them are, are from later than that, but the architecture there is absolutely beautiful. And, and so the fact that you see these vineyards and these super old buildings within the middle of a city uh, is absolutely, it, it's amazing. You have to go check it out for sure. Uh, this particular vineyard is located just outside of the vineyard. Um, this area is called Balf. Um, what he wanted to, what Franz wanted to show off with this is soils. Um, so this is coming from a combination of um, basically mica schist uh, is, is the main component as well as uh, nice or genice, depending on who you're talking to. Um, and these soils are, are very like hard, rocky, um, primary soils. And so I, I find that the wines really taste um, as much like minerals as they do like fruit. To add to that even further, they've planted a grape called Kek Frankosh. So Kek Frankosh, um, you know, my understanding of it was that it, it meant Kek, which meant blue, and then Frankosh, which means from France. But apparently uh, it has a different history than that and is, is actually called Kek Frankosh uh, because of the blue French banknotes uh, that the Napoleonic troops uh, would pay for wine with so that they I, I guess they knew something along the lines that like that blue banknote uh, was worth one bottle of Keck Frankosh. Uh, I don't know if that story is true or not, but uh, I read it recently and I felt like it was interesting enough to share. Um, 
Either way, so, so they've planted Cac Francoche, which for me is a great variety that really shows minerality. Uh, it shows soil type, and this is one of the things that we get most excited about as wine geeks. Um, it's one thing for a wine to taste like fruit and, and taste really delicious and all those sort of things, but ultimately what we want from the you know, best wines in the world is we want them to be unique and then show that sense of somewhereness, where it's you, you can taste the wine and you can attribute at least some factors to the actual soil as opposed to winemaking or grape variety. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's great if a, a Riesling tastes like a Riesling, but it's cooler if it tastes like a Riesling uh, from you know, a particular vineyard. Uh, that's the stuff that gets us really excited. And so Keck Francos is a great, great variety for expressing those characteristics. Um, for me, Keck Francos always reminds me of a combination of uh, Syrah and Merlot, where it has the spice and, and minerality and, and sort of gaminess of Syrah. Um, but then the plushness and softness and almost that like cocoa nibby kind of vibe that, that good Merlot tends to have. Um, Depending on soil type, it, it leans one way or the other. I find that when it's planted on uh, clay um, or some of those cooler, you know, softer soils, you end up with more sort of Merlot-like characteristics versus when you're planted on hard soils like this, um, you tend to get more of those Syrah-y characteristics. So in this case, very much Syrah-esque. Uh, blind tasting this, I would guess that it's you know, Saint-Joseph, so like Northern Rhone Syrah, um, or maybe like Crow's Hermitage because it's got some of that blue fruit characteristic. Um, but I would definitely guess that it's it's French Syrah. There's, a, you know, you probably wouldn't guess Cac Francoche in a blind tasting because it's so unlikely to be in a blind tasting. But either way, I, I think that it has a lot of Syrah-like characteristics. Um, Franz is farming biodynamically here, as we said, uh, and when it comes to winemaking, he's uh, very mineral, uh, minimal. Sorry, uh, He goes barrel by barrel deciding how much sulfur to add, um, so he's basically testing the wine for how resilient it is to oxidation, how resilient it is to um, you know, bacteria or whatever it happens to be, and this basically results in really low levels of sulfur being used. Uh, he only added 10 parts per million um, of sulfur to this particular wine, yet it's extraordinarily stable. And he finds that long aging in barrel um, really helps with this stability. So he actually takes his barrels and rotates them so that the, the bung, so like the hole on top of the barrel, is actually submerged in wine. And this prevents uh, a lot of oxygen from getting away almost creates a, a vacuum, um, and this actually helps the wine uh, age really delicately and, and really stabilize, at least in his opinion. I'd, I'd really like to see some, you know, a scientific study done on this, but as far as I can tell, whatever he's doing is, is working really nicely. Um, this is a, a really versatile wine as well. Uh, it's got, you know, moderate alcohol. You know, I think we're looking at about 12.5% here. Um, but it doesn't feel light. It definitely feels like there's tons of flavor, uh, tons of dark fruit, tons of spice, definitely a peppery quality, definitely a floral quality to it. Uh, so it ends up being fairly versatile as far as what you pair it with. It'll go with, you know, a lot of proteins, whether that be, uh, you know, chicken and, and, and duck and things on that end of the spectrum, all the way up to, you know, steaks and, and, you know, stews and, you know, those richer sort of meat dishes. Uh, it's extremely versatile. So I think you can go either way with this.
Um, the other nice thing about this is that I definitely think that it has some ageability. Uh, not that many of you are actually hanging on to the wines every month, uh, but if anybody were to hang on to a bottle of this or buy a couple extra bottles to put in their cellar, uh, I think that it would really develop nicely over the next sort of four or five years. Uh, you know, I don't think it's it's going to go the long haul. Like, I don't think you'd want to age it 10 to 20 years, but definitely in that four or five year range, I think it would get super interesting. Uh, I think uh, Mark and I might put a couple in the uh, in the juice import cellar. Um, you know, the, the secret stash of wine that we have for pulling out at uh, at uh, parties and that sort of thing. So maybe, maybe we'll tuck a couple of these aside, especially for the price. Like the fact that you can age a wine for that long and it's under $30 a bottle, it's it's just a screaming deal. So especially if you buy, uh, you know, I think most of the shops that we work with will give you like 10% off if you buy <clears throat> like a six pack of the same wine. And so it's uh, it's a pretty wicked deal for sure. Uh, the final wine that we have in this month is super special. Uh, it's one of the first wines that we ever included in Wine Club uh, all the way back in, in 2018. And um, this is a wine that's, that's really special to me because we don't get a lot of it. Uh, in fact, we had to get super creative with this. So basically, we don't receive enough of this wine in any given year to use it in Wine Club. So we actually had to save two years worth of this wine in order to be able to put it in Wine Club. Uh, it's absolutely ridiculous, but we, we literally hung on to our, um, our allocation from last year until now uh, so that you could either get 2018 or 2019, uh, I believe those are the vintages at least, um, in, the, in the Wine Club this month. So, uh, you know, it's sort of a lottery system. Who knows which one you'll get? Uh, both are equivalently delicious. Uh, and both are drinking just absolutely fantastic right now. So I think you'll be super excited about this last one here. So this is Laurent Sayard's Joyful. Uh, Laurent Sayard has, has long been an inspiration to me. I think that he's just such a thoughtful human being. Um, he started off as a, as a chef in New York after moving there from France. And, uh, you know, rumor has it that he could hardly speak any English, but he was able to, um, you know, basically weasel his way into the uh, <laughs> into the restaurant scene there, uh, ended up opening up arguably one of New York's first natural wine bars, um, and then eventually just sold everything and moved to France, uh, back to France, to the Loire Valley, uh, to make wine. And so he's really sort of, you know, gone back to his roots and, and gone to the source. The idea that, you know, you can be sort of a primary producer, you could farm the grapes and you can make a product that then gets drank around the world, as opposed to being a chef who basically gets to work in, you know, in one place and you'd have to go there in order to actually experience the the food that they make. So this is an opportunity to share uh, sort of, you know, his farming ideology and his winemaking ideology with, uh, with a lot more people. Uh, so he's in the Loire Valley in France. Um, the Loire Valley is a very diverse region, um, as we talked about last month in the wine club. Um, it spans for you know hundreds of kilometers uh, from east to west. It follows the Loire River, um, and it has basically three different regions within the same region. Um, you have a coastal region that is a little bit cooler, uh, really influenced by the ocean, um, really, you know, a little more wet, a little more overcast, uh, things like that. Then you move 
uh, all the way inland and you, and you have the exact opposite of that where you have extreme temperature variation, um, really hot summers, dry hot summers, um, really cold winters, um, less influence from the coast, and then you sort of have a central region, which is where uh, you find Laurent Sayard. So here he's sort of getting a balance of a little bit of a coastal influence, but a little bit warmer summers. Um, and because of that, you can get red grapes ripe. So on the coast, you see almost exclusively white grapes versus inland, you're starting to see more red grapes. And here we have Cabernet Franc. Uh, this Cabernet Franc comes from like basically his, his best, you know, red grape vines, uh, at least in my uh in, in my opinion, which, you know, you should, shouldn't take a, you know, take, take it with a grain of salt, I suppose. Um, but yeah, basically, you know, the, the best Cab Franc vines that you can possibly have, uh, they're, they're quite old at this point. Um, you know, just making super concentrated fruit, very flavorful, very intense. Um, and, uh, he's doing a really interesting fermentation process on, on this wine. Uh, I believe that he got these very specialized barrels from Eric Fiverling, who um, runs uh, an estate in, in Tabel, uh, that those wines are just absolutely gorgeous. Like some of my favorite wines, uh, whenever I see them on a wine list, I, I try and buy them. Uh, you know, hopefully one day we'll, we'll find a way of getting an allocation, uh, but his wines are definitely worth seeking out. So anyways, um, Laurent Sayard got... Uh, these barrels from him um, because he thought that the wines that they were making were really cool. So basically imagine a barrel, but instead of having just like a bung hole on top of it, it actually has like a porthole, um, this sort of like stainless steel contraption. Um, it's almost like a little hatch. And because it's a, it's a lot wider and, and seals, um, you can open it up and you can actually put whole grapes inside instead of just grape juice. So the way that you would normally make wine in a barrel is that uh, you're just putting the juice into the barrel and the juice ferments versus if you're making wine in a tank, um, you can use the actual like whole clusters of grapes or whole grapes uh, to actually extract a lot of flavor from the, from the skins of the grapes. Um, and in this case, you're kind of ending up with the best of both worlds. So he's destemming the grapes, so taking the grapes off the stems, and then he's filling the entire barrel with individual grapes. Uh, so you have a barrel entirely filled, like right to the very top with, with actual grapes. And then he's sealing this porthole. And basically what that does is creates an environment where there's no oxygen, especially once fermentation kicks off a little bit and pushes out some CO2 to, to basically blanket the grapes. And then the grapes start fermenting from the inside out. Um, this type of intracellular fermentation is really great for extracting fruit-driven flavors it's good for minimizing tannin. It's good for softening the acidity. Um, and when you're doing it without the stems, you're not extracting any of the sort of green herbal qualities uh, that you'd expect from the stems. This has only been done for the last two years for this particular cuvee. So for anybody who had uh, the 2017 that we included in Wine Club back in 2018, this is going to be an entirely different wine. Um, it's, it's made you know, basically night and day difference between the two. Not only that, but the 2017, um, they weren't able to get a lot of ripeness out of the grapes. So you're talking about a wine that was only 11.5% uh, alcohol um, versus the 2018 and 2019 are, are quite a bit higher than that. And so this is like a, a whole new ball game. Um, so that's really why we wanted to include this because we wanted to show that 
vintage variation is hugely important, but also that winemakers adapt their styles slowly and surely. Um, for somebody like Laurent Sayard, who only has you know probably less than 10 vintages under his belt, uh, he's still learning all the time. And that's really exciting for us to see as well, see this evolution as a winemaker, um, you know, see where he thinks that he can improve and, and do better. And uh, so it, it's cool to see something like this, and especially a process that I've never seen before. I've never seen these barrels. When we went there, we were just completely blown away, and I was really excited. I was like, if I ever have a winery, I'm definitely going to get my hands on one of these barrels and, uh, you know, represent. So... Um, Cabernet Franc as, as a great variety is actually the father of Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, so they have a lot of flavor characteristics in common with one another. It's mostly focused on dark fruit, so mostly on sort of blackberry. The classic tasting now is black raspberry, which I'm not sure if any of you have ever had a black raspberry. I definitely have not, but I totally get what they're saying. It's like sort of raspberry-esque flavors, but way darker. Um, so I kind of understand that. A lot of like black plum skin. Um, but Cabernet Franc also tends to have a distinct herbaceousness. Um, in best case scenario, uh, it's almost like candied sage, um, like eucalyptus, sort of those, those minty kind of herbal qualities. Uh, worst case scenario, you end up with things like green pepper, um, you know, like crunchy green peppers, and, and sometimes that doesn't really work in the wine. Uh, Laurent Sayard's version is is way more fruit driven, um, with a little bit of spice. It definitely has almost like a peppery characteristic to it, which I really enjoy. Uh, again, this wine is extraordinary, ver extraordinarily versatile because it is you know fairly low alcohol, uh, fairly low tannin. Although there is a little bit of grip to it for sure, uh, it can pair with a, a wide variety of dishes. Pretty much anything you can throw at this will will get along well. Uh, it's even called joyful, so it's like you know you're going to have a good time. Um, but this is definitely one of the rarest wines that we've ever included in Wine Club. Uh, the fact that we had to combine two vintages, uh, even just to get you guys enough wine, is is just amazing. Um, after this, we only have 36 bottles left for uh, all of Alberta, uh, so it's not a lot of wine to go around, that's for sure. Um, yeah. Anyways, I, I hope you guys enjoyed this wine club this month. This is one of my favorites so far, uh, although they're they're all my favorites, and it just seems like every month uh, it gets a little bit better, and we, we kind of hone in on what people are looking for. Um, but if you have any questions at all, feel free to reach out to us. There's tons of ways of doing that, whether you want to send us a, a DM on Instagram. Uh, our Instagram is just at Juice Imports. Uh, whether you want to send me an email, my email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Um, you can go on our website, www.juiceimports.com. There's tons of really great information on there. Uh, we just published our guide to the Okanagan. So if you're looking for where to go in the Okanagan, uh, definitely check that out. We also published uh, our poetry reading list. Uh, so my personal collection of, of poems that I think are worth reading. Uh, so you can check that out as well if uh, that's your vibe. And we'll be posting even more stuff on there very soon. So definitely check it out for more information about each of these producers and uh, anything else that you want to learn about with wine. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. We'll uh, chat with you soon. Thanks. Bye.